0: Before I um, commit my own way to the Lord here in prayer, along with Rick, let me give you some reasons why it's good to be with you, Um, why it feels like a significant privilege. I've got four reasons for why I'm happy to be with you and why it's an honor. Number one, um, I never feel more honored or out of my depth than when I'm called upon to preach the word of God. I mean, think of that phrase, word of God. That's an awesome thing that the creator of the universe has spoken in nature, in his son, in an infallible book, and that he has appointed people to open the book and declare his word to others should make a person tremble. And so it's an honor to be asked to do that. That's number one. Number two is that I love the vision of a year of uh, exporting, going deeper into hope. Romans fifteen four says, everything that was written, referring back to the Old Testament. Everything. Think of this. Think of all the parts of the Old Testament. Everything that was written was written for your instruction that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the scriptures you may have hope. The whole Bible exists for the success of this year's effort. That's true. It says so. Hope is a precious thing. I mean, think about the miseries and the pain and the brokenness and the dysfunction of our inner cities across America. Not to mention everybody else's brokenness. One of the deepest roots of that brokenness is loss of hope. People do, wherever they live, people do terrible things to themselves and to others when they have zero hope in this world or the next. Anything goes where there's no hope. So that's the second reason. I love what you're up to. I love the focus on hope in this church and in this community. Number three, I love the message of this psalm. And so does my wife. She has an email address based on this song. We love what is here. Peace, calm, quietness of soul in God, not circumstance, is a miracle. The older I get, The more I want to walk in it, I I don't want to meet God nervous. I, I just want to rest in Him so that crossing the last river will be okay, right? Just restful, peaceful, okay. It's over, I'm home. I don't want the world's. Terrors to terrorize me. I'm teaching Philippians right now, and I assigned this book to my students The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's an old Puritan book, 350 years old, written by Jeremiah Burroughs, 300 and no, 200 and whatever, six pages on one verse. <laughs> I have learned in every situation to be content and I read to them last Wednesday this quote about the difference between contentment that is based on what's going on in the world or your family or your business and what's going on in here are you dependent on external things to to make you peaceful, or is peace arising in here and being exported there? And listen to what he says. He compares it to, um, do your clothes have to be warmed by the fire before you put them on, or do you make your clothes warm when you put them on? Here's what he says. To be content as a result of some external thing is like warming a man's clothes by the fire. But to be content through an inward disposition of soul is like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the natural heat of his body. A man who is healthy in body puts on his clothes and perhaps at first on a cold morning, they feel cold. But after he has them on for a little while, they are warm. Now, how did they get warm? They were not near the fire. No, this came from natural heat in his body. Now, when a sickly man, the natural heat of whose body has deteriorated, puts on his clothes, they do not get hot for a long time. He must warm them by the fire. And even then, they will soon be cold again. Psalm 131 pictures a man whose calm, peace, contentment is coming from his position in the lap of God, not from the turmoil in the Davidic kingdom, and he had plenty, but from God. And I love that I want to grow into that. I want to die that way. I want to live that way. That's number three, why I'm glad to be in this text with you this morning. And the last one is that I like your pastor Um, and therefore it's hard to turn him down. Um, I've known Rick for a long time. Goes back decades in the BGC, uh, different kinds of ways. And I've watched over the years and I love men who are constant solid in the word care about truth don't waver stay the course and so I like him and it's been a privilege to have him part-time over at Bethlehem College and Seminary so that our paths cross more often so for those four reasons Rick thanks for inviting me to be a part of this now I'm gonna pray like you did father I ask for myself I just want to humble myself before these people and before your word especially that you'd help me be faithful to what you've said in this psalm and what you've said in other parts of your word. So that these brothers and sisters will be built up in hope and humility and calmness of soul and sweetness of spirit and strength. Steadiness of life and unshakableness of their rootedness in your grace. Oh, we want to be people who are not thrown off balance by the beheadings of ISIL or the racial tensions of Ferguson or the abusive upheavals of a Ray Rice. We don't, we don't want to get knocked down off of balance or out of kilter or lose our center of gravity when we watch the news. We want to get everything from you and walk into a world of turmoil as shalom makers and and hope givers. So work that now in, in these people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're familiar with this psalm. Let's just walk through it real briefly, and then I'll I'll try to take the angle on it implied in that word Christian hedonism and see if it's really here. Three verses, three points. Number one, verse one, David's renunciation of, of pride. So we're in Psalm 131. They're handing out Bibles. That's great. If you want to follow along, I'd love it. Verse 1, David's renunciation of pride. Verse 2, David's intentional composure of himself like a weaned child in his mother's lap. Verse 3, David's summons or call to the people to join him in restful hope, waiting on the Lord. Let's walk through those one at a time. David's renunciation of pride and and self-exaltation. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He's he's negating three stages of, of pride. Pride is always of one of two forms, isn't it? There's the pride of the having and the pride of the wanting, the pride of the strong and the pride of the weak. What I mean by the pride of having is you have a superiority and you want everybody to know about it. So you brag, or you boast, or you feature it in various ways. You have it and you want others to recognize it, that's pride. The, having of, uh, the pride of the non-havers, they don't have a superiority, they just want it. They crave it. That's pride. And they often assume postures of um, being hurt so that you will recognize their suffering and honor the virtue in enduring it. That's pride. Don't think pride only has one face or one form. It's a subtle, wicked, pervasive thing in every one of you and me, taking all kinds of heart and facial and active demeanors, which, which is what I see in those three phrases. I see three levels of him going to war against pride. A heart level, feeling level, secondly, a countenance or appearance level, and third, an active level. You see that? Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. That's the feeling level. I am making war on pride at the very first twinkle of a feeling in my soul. The heart level. I'm going after it. I'm going to slay this dragon at my heart level. Second, my eyes. He moves from his heart to his eyes. My eyes, my countenance, my appearance, my uplifted nose, my stiff neck, my rolling of the eyes, the whole appearance level of pride. I'm going to work there. If if anything escapes my first war on my feelings. And, and gets through, I'm going to make war out here and do something so that I don't communicate to people pride and arrogance about what they just said or, or something they've experienced or my own sense of superiority. And then thirdly, he moves to the action level. I do not occupy myself. I do not go, literally in the Hebrew, I do not go or walk in things that are too marvelous for me. So if anything escapes my warfare on my heart pride or my appearance pride and starts to make its way into my action pride, I'm going after that. I'm not going to let that happen. Isn't that remarkable? You know that it seems like a, a negative way to approach life I don't, I don't, I don't. Here's, here's the reason for that, I think. Humility is one of those really unusual and glorious attributes that can't be sought directly, can it? Like you say, I'm going to work real hard now to be humble. Because as soon as you make any progress, you know it. And then it it backfires. You can't, humility is one of those things that has to be a reflex of of, of something else. You you never succeed at humility looking in the mirror. I mean, even if you don't like what you see there, your heart's going to do something with that. Like, oh poor me, I'm not pretty or I'm not handsome. And then you'll go around and making sure people feel sorry for you, which is a form of pride. It won't work. It won't work. You, you have to forget about yourself, don't you? Any focus on yourself that preoccupies yourself with yourself, you've got to fix me, I'm going to make myself humble, I'm going to achieve this virtue of humility, absolutely won't work. You have to go about it something like this. You have to be attacking the stuff in you you don't like that you hate. And you, you, you look away then. Okay, so that brings us now to, to verse 2 right? What's the alternative to this proud disposition of heart or countenance or action? What's the alternative to that? I have calmed and quieted my soul like a wean child with its mother, like a wean child is my soul within me. Notice the focus on soul, soul. He's at the heart level, not at the countenance level, not at the action level. He is going for the root here to make sure that his soul is not boasting or craving self-exaltation or autonomy. It's just resting and peaceful and content. The weaned child, a picture of contentment, right? The unweaned child rooting around for the breast, got rumblings in his stomach, crying and trying to get that rumbling settled. And the weaned child, not there for his stomach, but there because it's just a wonderful place to be. Mom is awesome. And sitting there is the safest, sweetest, calmest. Most contented place on the planet for a little child who's not hungry, just there. In the loving presence of God. Now, how do we know that? doesn't say so, does it, in verse 2? There's nothing said about God in verse 1. There's nothing said about God in verse 2. I've just... Contented myself like a weaned child. How do we know that's contentment in God? How do we know that's an analogy or a picture of contentment in God? Since it doesn't say so. And isn't the answer that it would be utterly unreasonable to suppose that verse 3 would come out of nowhere? Right? O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Why would he summon all Israel to hope in the Lord if he just found his contentment somewhere else? It wouldn't make any sense, right? So I have quieted and comforted myself with something else. Now you, Israel, you seek the Lord if you want to. i found peace over here. That's just nonsense. So the reason we know verse 2 is talking about a quiet, calm, contentment in God is because he then commends that to all Israel with the word hope. So summary on this little overview. Renounce all self-reliance. Renounce all self-exaltation. Renounce all self-autonomy. My way or the highway, I'm going to get it. All kinds of pride. Just say no to all that and turn away now, verse 2, to God and crawl up in his lap and enjoy him, not because you've got stomach stuff that needs to be satisfied, but because he is the most pleasant place in the universe. In my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Come on up, enjoy. And then export. <laughs> All Israel, hope in the Lord. Join me in this. Join me in what I have found. So that's my little summary of the psalm, and Rick said that he invited me here, in part, anyway, because I am a Christian hedonist. What in the world is that? A Christian hedonist is not a person who believes that the highest good is pleasure. That pleasure defines the highest good. So if you have a pleasure, you have a good. That's not what Christian hedonists believe. They don't believe that the meaning of virtue is attain and pursue pleasure. That's not what a Christian hedonist is saying, the Christian hedonist knows there's plenty of pleasure in the world that is suicidal. It will ruin you now and forever. So the Christian hedonist is not naive that mere pleasure-seeking can be the good of life. It can be the destruction of life. Christian hedonists are not fools. They don't intend to experience 800 million ages of misery for the sake of 80 years of pleasure. No, thank you. Not a good deal. So, what do they believe? They believe not that pleasure defines virtue, but that all true virtue includes the effort to maximize pleasure in God. See, two things. I believe, we're going to get to the text. I believe that you ought, virtue, obligation, duty, you ought to pursue, make efforts to maximize in time and eternity your pleasure in God. So you get two things, effort and in God, effort and in God. So when I say pleasure in God, I mean make the effort to maximize pleasure in God, not food. God, not family, God, not ministry, God, not study, God, not sex, God, not sports, God, not music, God, not power, God, not success, God, not television, God, not money. And every one of those things is okay. But if you pursue maximum joy in them, it's idolatry. So when I say, when a Christian hedonist says maximize pleasure, he always means in God, not the good things that God has made, or the bad things that we've made out of them. And the second feature is it's an effort to pursue. A lot of people think, good night, I have read so many Over the years, ethicists, philosopher types, biblical scholars who say joy, happiness, pleasure are appropriate byproducts of other legitimate pursuits. But don't pursue them. I've heard that over and over again. That's just not what the Bible says. (laughs) I'm so glad when I was a graduate student in Germany, I was an old-time fundamentalist at heart because I had learned from my daddy and my mom, the Bible is true. Philosophies come and go. Movements in biblical scholarship come and go. And my nose smelled rottenness, where everybody else saw the latest wonderful thing, like, it's okay to get happiness as a byproduct, but don't pursue it. Well, I think that's idolatrous and blasphemous (laughs) and dead wrong. We don't just accept happiness; we pursue happiness in God. Psalm one forty-three, verse four: "I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy." It's commanded. Psalm one thirty, Psalm thirty-seven, four: "Delight yourself in the Lord." That's not an option, right? That's not an option. That's a command. Or Philippians four four Rejoice in the Lord. And again I will say, lest you misunderstood, again I will say, Rejoice. That's a command. Pursue joy in God. Maximize joy in God. Now here, Psalm 131, back at verse 2. Are we, are we back? I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. It just bother you that he says, I, I did that. I calmed my soul. You don't say, but don't you mean, you, you don't really want to say it like that, do you? you? You mean God calmed your soul, don't you? Why do you say it like this? I have calmed and quieted my soul. Well, he doesn't mean, he does not mean, we know that from the whole context of these three verses, he does not mean my calmness, my restfulness, my contentment, and my satisfaction is flowing straight out of me. (laughs) Like I'm a little child curled up in front of the mirror, not in my mother's lap. I'm in front of the mirror. And every now and then I open my eyes and I see how wonderful I am and I close my eyes again and I feel sweet confidence flowing over me because of me. We know that's not what he means. Well, what does he mean when he says, I did this? I calmed and quieted my soul. He means I crawled up there. (laughs) <laughs> I crawled up there in her lap. I sought this. I wanted this. I needed this. I went for this. I'll do anything to have this from him. If you, if you try not to pursue your joy in God, you will pursue it elsewhere. You don't have any choice. You are wired to want happiness. You are wired to crave contentment. You are wired by God, not the devil, by God to long to be content and happy and satisfied. And what What went wrong in the world is that we threw away the glory of God and exchanged it for the mirror or for things we create. And now men are desperately trying to pour into the black hole of their soul the things of creation and it won't work. We are made to be happy maximally and forever in God. And if we reject him as our supreme happiness and treasure and pleasure and contentment, we will perish forever. And we'll spend all of eternity in hell desperately trying to use other people to make us happy. And it will never ever work and it will burn forever as an empty void. So my point there from verse two is that when David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul, he doesn't mean I became the source of my calm and my quiet and my contentment. He meant I pursued God. I didn't wait. I went after it with all my might. It's active. It's it's pursuit. And so I want to say to Village Church what he says in verse 3. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. That means, join me. Seek your calmness. Seek your quietness of soul. Seek your contentment and your satisfaction where I found it. In God. If you think that you're doing right by not pursuing your joy, I'd like to turn that on its head and say, Not to pursue your supreme joy, not to pursue maximum happiness, not to pursue sweet, deep contentment in God is horrible sin. Why? Why is it horrible sin to be lackadaisical about the pursuit of your satisfaction in God? and it's because it dishonors him. God is honored when he is our supreme treasure, isn't he? How do you make God look glorious? By treasuring him as infinitely glorious, by enjoying him as supremely satisfying. What did Paul say? I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then his life took on that flavor. Everywhere you looked in Paul, he was making choices and expressing with his face and with his heart and with his action, he was expressing Christ is my supreme value. Who gets honored in that moment when Paul is supremely happy? in Christ. Christ gets honored. He gets the honor, we get the joy. So if you think you're doing God a favor by coasting and trying to find contentment by not pursuing it in him, you're not doing him a favor. You're dishonoring him. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Oh, village church, hope in the Lord. Which is another way of saying, pursue verse 2. Join David in the pursuit of verse 2 of that deep, sweet contentment. Now let me draw things to a close here with being a little more specific. Um, David's deep soul contentment, restfulness, peacefulness, quietness, Peace, satisfaction is in God. I would guess that for some of you, and I'm sure this is the case for some of the people you work with, the word G-O-D carries almost no joy-giving content. You say the word to people, their first thought isn't, whoa, that's just so satisfying. That's just so peace-giving. That's just so, I mean, that's better than sex. That's better than food. That's better than family. I mean, who do you know that responds that way to the word G-O-D? Which means for ourselves and for them, we've got a lot of work to do. Because this book is as thick as it is because it intends to fill that word with glory. That's the point of the book to fill the word g o d with such meaning that when you say it to yourself all all those emotions happen it's not natural for a word a three letter word to do anything to us emotionally the word has to be filled up right g o d has to become something it has to be something we don't We don't want to use language, religious language, church language, God talk, as though it's just self evident that it carries the truckloads of meaning that would make people happy if they heard it. They aren't happy when they hear it. The world has to be taught. Jesus said, Go make disciples of all the nations. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Well, that's four Gospels worth. I wrote a book on that text one time called What God Demands from the World. What a glorious experience that was sitting for four months in Cambridge, working on every single command in the, in the Gospels. There's about 400 of them. And trying to organize them into a kind of picture so that it would make sense. This is what you say to the world. Teach the world. So... Let's close with just four little glimpses into the freight that the word God carries in David's mind. So here's what I did to to prepare this little closing portion. I looked up this word Yahal, hope in the Lord, everywhere in the Psalms that it's used. It's used a lot. And then I picked four of them, and their associations. Because when he says, hope in the Lord, village church, Lord should carry some meaning that causes hope to rise, right? So if the word L-O-R-D doesn't have any really content for you, hope won't rise when you hear the word Lord. Like, hope in the Lord, you say, well, I'm I'm supposed to, but it's just not working. (laughs) I'm I'm hearing the word, and it's not working. Nothing's happening in here. Well, that's because the Word doesn't have the content it did for David. So, four little glimpses into what G-O-D-L-O-R-D, Yahweh, means for David. When he, when he hears the Word, hope in that, in him, this is what he hears. So, number one, just I'll just read them and, and then we'll be done. Number one, Psalm 33, verse 22 let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. All right, so when you hope in the Lord, <clears throat> when you have contentment in him and seek for your supreme uh, restfulness and satisfaction in him, he rests upon you as steadfast love. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So when he hears the word G-O-D, hope in God, or hope in the Lord, he means this is the kind of God who unshakably loves his covenant people. Number two, Psalm 130 verse 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Hope in the Lord, he will redeem. Hope in the Lord, he will redeem from iniquities. So, when he says, Village Church, hope in the Lord. Find your contentment in the Lord. The word L-O-R-D carries the truckload of Redeemer from iniquities. Because you're Christians, right? You're not just Old Testament saints. You know how this happens. You know Christ has come into the world. This Lord, this God, this Yahweh sent his Son into the world to bear our sins so that no condemnation is spoken over us. And now when we are called to hope in him, we're not just hoping with our fingers crossed, like, oh my goodness, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's not even close to what we're hoping. We're hoping in a God who redeems us from all our iniquities. Incredible. I mean, that'll put you to sleep peaceful at night, get you up hoping in the morning. All my iniquities forgiven. That's what L-O-R-D carries for David. That's number two. Number three, Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who Hope in his steadfast love. So, for those who are hoping, village church, hoping in God, finding contentment in God, finding satisfaction in God, one of the meanings of God is he has eyes and they are vigilantly watching over me to show himself mighty on behalf of all those who are finding their hope in him. I love 2nd Chronicles sixteen nine. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world seeking to show himself mighty on behalf of those whose heart is whole towards him. Think of it. God is not waiting with pent-up power and no place to show it. He's looking for opportunities to be strong on behalf of people who hope in him. So that's the third meaning in David's mind when he says, hope in the Lord, hope in the one who's pursuing you to show his power on your behalf. Think that way. Hear that when you hear Lord. And lastly, number four, Interesting that Rick said what he said at the end of his comments. I'll remind you what that is, but we'll, you'll hear it here. Psalm one forty-seven, eleven: The Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in his steadfast love. That's almost beyond comprehension. Very, very few of you have the gall to think you deserve for God to take pleasure in you. You're so sinful. You fail so many times. I mean you, how could you be a an ingredient in the pleasure of Almighty God? And yet, that's what it says. God takes pleasure In us when we find pleasure in him. Isn't that what it says? Let me read the the very words again. Psalm 147 verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those, not everybody, some he will send to hell. He's not taking pleasure in them. What's the difference? The Lord takes pleasure in those who hope perform, who hope in his steadfast love, which we've now seen moves back from verse 3 to verse 2 in our text, means contenting yourself, settling yourself, calming yourself, quieting yourself in the all-sufficiency of God. And now you know that that God is one who delights in those who delight in him. like this. Um, I've been trying to discern the implications of this, call it Christian hedonism, that's what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes, Christian hedonism. I've been trying to discern the implications of this for about 40 years now, and my favorite sentence to sum it up is, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. And I think that's true, and I think that's why pursuing your satisfaction in him is so important, because his glory is displayed through your finding your supreme satisfaction in him. But now, on the basis of Psalm one hundred forty seven, eleven and Psalm one thirty one two and three, I'm going to say it like this God is most satisfied in you when you are most satisfied. In him, which is what you said just before you prayed. That God is pleased with those who are pleased in him. God is delighting in those who delight in him. God enjoys those who enjoy him. Why? Because we have become God to God? No, no. Because our delight in God shows the supreme value of God. Our satisfaction in God shows shows the supreme value of God. So, religious church, take this 40-year celebration and go for broke. Maximize your supreme pleasure in God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are our great treasure. You are the great reservoir of forgiveness and reservoir of strength and reservoir of wisdom and reservoir of beauty. Forbid that we would turn away from you and make a God A supreme treasure out of anything in this world. Keep yourself at the bottom, at the center, and at the top of our affections, I pray. Bless this church, God. Grant that that they would feel, oh Israel, hope in the Lord brimming over in every conversation they have with people outside the faith this year all throughout these western suburbs, Lord, grant, I pray, that there would be, O Israel, O America, O Minnesota, hope in the Lord. Calm yourself in the Lord. Quiet your soul in the Lord. Find forgiveness in the Lord. Find his pleasure in you by finding yours in him.